Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. I want to begin our time together in God's Word today by asking you a very simple question. How does healing happen? How does healing happen? I can remember as a kid when the circus came to my hometown. I mean, there were tents and clowns and cotton candy and cheap magic shows, the whole nine yards, and eight-year-old little Luke was just thrilled to death. And I remember still the climactic moment of the performance when into the ring walked an elephant. And this thing was huge, and I was just enraptured. It was like the wildness of the African plains had somehow found its way to podunk little Joplin, Missouri. But to be honest, even in that moment, as exciting as it was, even as a kid, I can remember watching this colossal beast just kind of plodding dutifully around the ring at the command of one normal-sized guy. And even as a kid, to me, it was just a little bit sad. I mean, you could just tell that this elephant was not meant to spend its life walking in circles in little towns across Midwest America. What happened to the strength, the nobility, the wildness of this majestic creature? It had been broken. You see, I've read since then, so the story goes, that the people who train elephants for the circus, they found out an incredibly simple method of keeping the elephants contained. They found that you could contain a massive elephant with just a thin little rope tied to its leg. I mean, no chains, no cages, nothing. You see, when that elephant was first taken and, and, and brought into the property, the, the, became the property of the circus as a baby, they tied that elephant's leg to a stake in the ground, often with a chain or a thick rope. And that little baby elephant, try as it might, could not break that rope, could not pull that stake up out of the ground. And so, as that elephant then grows big and strong, even when it has the strength to break the rope and pull the stake up out of the ground, it doesn't even try. So you can use just a small little rope to tie the ankle of the elephant to the stake in the ground because that elephant has been conditioned to believe that it cannot get free. And my guess is that for some of you today, there's still a little rope tied around your heart. That you have been conditioned to believe that you cannot get free, that you cannot be healed. I don't know what it is that you're trying to break free from, what the rope is, maybe a habitual sin that you can't break, a regret that you can't get over, a fear that is plaguing your mind, whatever it is, you think you should be past it right now, but it's a little bit embarrassing to admit, but if you're honest, you're, you're really, you're just not past it, you're not free, you're not healed yet. So again, let's ask our question, how does healing happen I want to look at an encounter that Jesus has with a man who needs healing here in John chapter 5. Start with me in verses 1 through 3. It says, Sometimes later, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored, covered colonnades. I'm having trouble reading. <laughs> Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. 
So that's the scene here. Jesus, he's in Jerusalem, and he's at the pool of Bethesda. And there was this superstitious belief that when the waters in the pool of Bethesda bubbled, that they were being stirred by an angel. And that the first person to jump in the pool of Bethesda after those waters were stirred would be healed from whatever their ailment was. Now, in reality, that pool was likely fed by an underground spring. We've discovered this pool. We know where it is. You can go see it in Jerusalem today. And that an underground spring would occasionally cause the pool to bubble. But this pool basically became a sick ward because of this superstitious belief. All kinds of people with various ailments would crowd around, eager to be the first one in when the water bubbled. And Jesus is at the pool observing this when he singles out one man in particular, verses 5 through 7. It says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Can you imagine? When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. When I'm trying to get in, somebody goes down ahead of me. This guy's been lame for 38 years. He's probably dirty, probably smelly. He probably can't take care of himself. He has spent his entire life waiting and watching, hoping that maybe the water will be stirred again and maybe this time he'll be the first one in. And yet time after time after time, it's not him. I mean, think about it. Who do you think were the first ones in when the water got stirred? You think it was the ones who really needed it? The weakest, the poorest, the loneliest? No, (laughs) it's the guy with the chapped lips. (laughs) You know, it's the girl with the hangnail. She's the first one in, of course, because we know this. That's the way the world works. The strong and the self-sufficient succeed while the weak get crushed. That's something that those of us who've grown up in families and communities of privilege should always be aware of. So let's come back to our question. How does healing happen? Because the world told this guy, hey, just jump in the pool and then you'll be healed. And yet day after day, his hopes ran dry as he sits by a pool that fails to heal heal him. And, And I don't know what pool you're sitting by, but my guess is maybe you're tired. Maybe your hopes have run dry because what you're trusting to heal you hasn't. And day after day and day after day, you keep waiting and it's just not working. Because the world has a lot of pools of Bethesda that you can run to. So maybe you're tired. Maybe you're tired because you've been sitting by the pool of approval. Thinking that, well, maybe, maybe as soon as your boss acknowledges how valuable you are or as soon as your dad tells you that he's proud of you or once you get the right number of followers and friends on social media or, or once you get your kids start to achieve and behave well enough that people start to respect you as a parent, maybe then, then you'll be good. Then you'll be okay. But Jesus talks about the pool of approval. He says it won't heal you later in chapter five. Here he says, verses 42 and 44, he says, I know you. I know that you don't have the love of God in your hearts. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Approval won't heal you. Maybe you're tired because you've been sitting by the pool of religion Thinking that maybe, just maybe once you check all the boxes on your spiritual checklist, maybe maybe if you just join the right groups or read the right amount of scripture, maybe then, maybe then you'll feel peace. Maybe then you'll feel good about yourself. But at the end of this chapter, Jesus addresses the pool of religion to, he says to the Jewish leaders in verses 39 and 40, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
See, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to, to come to me to have life. They're reading the right book in the wrong way. No, 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 the pool of religion won't heal you without Jesus. Maybe you're tired because you've been sitting by the pool of performance, thinking that, well, if you could just finish school or once you lay in that job, get that raise, climb that ladder, then, then you'll be good, then you'll be okay. You'll have some peace, you can take it easy then. Or maybe you've been sitting by the pool of romance thinking that as soon as you find the one or have the kind of love life that you want or maybe once your spouse gets their act together and start treating you the way you want to be treated, then, then you'll feel good. Then your life will be all right. Or maybe you've been sitting by the pool of goodness thinking that if you can just do enough nice things to make the world a better place and help some people, then you could feel good about what's going on inside of yourself. But no, the pool of goodness won't heal you either. Some of you have been sitting by the pool of justice thinking that, well, if your ex just get what, gets what he deserves or as soon as you're better off than that person who betrayed you or if we could just pass the right laws, get the right legislation pushed through, the right people in office, then the world will be all right and everything will be fine. But the pool of justice won't even heal you. Maybe, maybe you've been sitting by the pool of comfort thinking that as soon as you take that vacation, buy that house, get that car, cross off those items off your bucket list, then you'll be fine. I don't know what pool you're sitting by, but whatever pool it is, I know it can't heal you. It'll let you down. It's a false hope. Saying do this and this and this and then your circumstances will change and you'll feel better. Because here's one of the things I've learned actually since the pandemic hit. You can't rely on what's around you to heal what's within you. You can't rely on what's around you to heal what's within you. Because I've come to believe that, that what's going on around you doesn't actually so much change what's within you. It just reveals what's within you. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard it. The BMW plants where they make these cars that every 20 or 30 BMW cars that come by, a big robot grabs them and, and shakes them up. And when the, when the robot shakes the car really, really, really hard, it's checking for any loose pieces. So if there's one thing that's even a tiny bit loose, this shaking robot will knock that nut loose or break that piece loose so that they can fix the problem. Its goal is to exacerbate the problem, to bring it to light. And this last 12 months has been that robot grabbing us and shaking us. Your circumstances doesn't change what's in you, but man, it reveals any little problem that's in there, right? So if you've been scared this last year, it's probably always been in there. Your circumstances just brought it to the surface. If you've been finding yourself getting angry over and over again, that probably just reveals that grace has yet to really get a hold of your heart in the way that God wants it to. Or here's a hard one. Maybe if you're feeling distant from Jesus, maybe if you've fallen away from your faith, you just had a hard time and, and, and you've kind of regressed this last 12 months or so when that 25-week stretch when we couldn't be in church together, maybe that reveals that you weren't as close to Jesus as you thought you were. What's going on around you doesn't change what's within you. It just reveals what's within you. That's what this man's circumstances did to him because you kind of notice all throughout chapter five, honestly, this dude has a bad attitude even after he gets healed. This guy was relying on the pool of Bethesda to heal him and instead it left him bitter and blaming. If you rely on what's around you to heal what's within you, you will become a prisoner of your circumstances. It will never be enough and you will spend your years sitting on your mat blaming those around you and your life will be marked by frustration and disappointment because whatever it is, I promise you, friends, family, achievement, it will let you down over and over and over again. But then... <laughs> Along comes Jesus to the pool of Bethesda. And when Jesus shows up, he doesn't heal the guy immediately. He asks a question. 
And that's part of why one of our challenges to you this year as a church is we're taking the one challenge is to become a good question asker. Jesus was a good question asker. Verse six says, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you wanna get well? He doesn't lecture him about the silliness of his superstition. He asks him a question. Do you want to get well? Seems like an obvious question, but you'll notice instead of saying yes, the guy just kind of responds by more excuses and more blaming. So maybe before we answer our question today, how does healing happen? We should ask the deeper question. Do you even really want healing to happen? Like, do you want to get well? Because honestly, this guy was kind of used to being lame, spending his days laying there, having other people take care of him. And to be truly healed, that would be kind of scary. I mean, leaving his whole life behind, his normal routine, leaving behind his habits. In some ways, a healed life is a harder life. I heard about some 14th century noblemen in Belgium. Reynald III was a Belgian duke, and he got in a fight with his younger brother, Edward, and Edward ended up revolting. He overthrew Reynald. But rather than having Reynald killed, Edward devised the clever way of imprisoning him. You see, Reynald III was very large. <laughs> and so Edward had a room built around Reynald and promised him that he could regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave that room. And for a normal-sized person, that would not have been difficult. The room had normal-sized windows and a near-normal-sized door. But in order to fit through that door and gain his freedom, Reynald had to lose some weight. But every day, Edward sent Reynald a variety of delicious foods. And so instead of dieting his way to freedom, Reynald just grew bigger and bigger. He ended up staying in that room for 10 years. Eventually, Reynald was released after Edward had died in battle. But by that point, his health was so bad that he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. So, you want to get well? Because maybe, just maybe, I know this feeling, maybe you feel safe in your weakness, in your sickness, in your brokenness, in your sin. That yeah, sure, you, you don't want it, but man, part of you does. And, and that honestly, yeah, you, you, you don't want your addiction, but, but part of you feels safe in your addiction. It's all you know. It's kind of a refuge for you. Or, or, or maybe you feel hopeless. You don't even know if healing is possible that you've tried books, you've tried counseling, you honestly just don't know if your marriage could ever be healthy. Maybe you feel like an elephant and there's this rope tied around your ankle. You're not sure how you're ever gonna get it broken. Maybe you feel like a lame man sitting on the mat, looking at those shriveled legs, knowing they're probably never gonna get you off the ground. There's no earthly way you could be healed. And you're right. <laughs> there is no earthly way you can ever be healed. But when the king of heaven came to the pool of Bethesda, look what happened. Look, verses eight and nine says, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And listen, the same Jesus that caused the lame man to walk can heal you too. But still doesn't really answer our question, does it? <laughs> How does healing happen? Well, even before we answer this how question, we need to ask the why question. Why does this healing in particular happen? Because if you think about it, if this pool really was crowded with people in need of healing, why did Jesus only heal this guy? 
His goal must not have been to heal every single sick person there. So why this guy? Why now? I think we see a clue here at the end of verse nine. It says, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Now you might remember that God told his people in the Old Testament, the Jews, to honor the Sabbath day. That was the fourth of the 10 commandments. Way back in the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created everything in six days, and then it said on the seventh day, he rested. And so God wanted his people to follow that example, to set aside the seventh day as a Sabbath, a day to rest, to worship, to focus on him, and to trust him by not working. Well, the problem with that was the Jews took that simple little command, and they got legalistic with it, like we all tend to do with rules. They said, well, what is work? And so the Jewish rabbis came up with 39 different definitions of work, one of which was that you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath. But then they debated about that too. Like, well, okay, what counts as a burden? And I'm not joking. They would debate questions like, can you wear your artificial teeth or is that carrying a burden? Like, can a woman wear a brooch? Can a man walk with a wooden leg? These are real things. We have writings of the Jewish rabbis on this. They missed the point. So in John chapter five here, Jesus shows up at the pool of Bethesda to have compassion on a lame man. Yes, of course, but he also shows up to pick a fight. Think about it. (laughs) This guy had been lame for 38 years. He could have waited one more day. (laughs) But Jesus chose the Sabbath to heal him. And then what does Jesus tell him to do? Pick up your mat. (laughs) Hey, buddy, carry a burden on the Sabbath. Jesus is intentionally stirring the pot here. And look what happens, verses 9 through 18. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Should be the end of the story, right? The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, "Uh, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you uh, from carrying your mat. (laughs) But he replied, "Uh, uh, the, the, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I mean, can you believe that? The guy blames Jesus, he should be grateful. How many times is that me? Verse 12 says, so they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Notice they don't say, wow, who's the fellow who healed you? (laughs) No, they said, who's the the fellow who broke our rules? Verse 13 says, the man who who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. If Jesus walked into the room right now and looked at you and said, stop sinning, What would he be talking about? I bet you know. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who'd made him well. Throws Jesus under the bus. And here's the climax, the point of it all. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And and yeah, sure, their reaction to Jesus is wrong, but their understanding of his claim is spot on. Jesus is saying effectively to the Jews, hey, you don't expect God to take a day off, and I'm not gonna take one either. Jesus is saying that what's true of God is true of him. 
So if we think about this, follow the train of Jesus's logic. Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda so that he could ultimately bring healing to all of us. He healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day so that he could make a point, that he could make the claim that he is God and he has the right to do so. And Jesus knew that upon making that claim, the wheels would be put in motion for the religious leaders to get him killed for making that claim. And Jesus knows that it is that moment, his death, that would bring healing to everyone who lay sick at the pool of Bethesda and the thousands of other pools that the world offers to us. He knew what the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 53, that by his wounds, we are healed. See, the basic claim of this miracle and the thrust of John chapter five as a whole is very simple. You can write this down in your Bible. The claim of John chapter five is this, Jesus is God. He wasn't made by God. He's not a vice God or a secondary God or a lesser God. Jesus is fully God. In fact, the back half of John chapter five here is known as the Sermon on Deity. And Jesus says, hey, the Father and I, we've got the same ability. We've got the same authority. We do the same things in the same way. And so for the rest of chapter five, Jesus fleshes out the implications of that claim that he is God. You should go read the rest of the chapter this week. But for our purposes today, I just wanna flesh out one implication of Jesus's divinity, and I wanna answer our question. How does healing happen? Jesus says this, verses 21 through 29. It says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So how does healing happen? Healing happens through hearing and believing Jesus. Believing that he is who he says he is, that he is God, and that because he is God, he's the only one with the authority to heal you and to give you life. If I walked into your house today and I grabbed your TV off the wall and I went and sold it, you'd be thinking, dude, what are you doing? You have no right to do that, that's mine. But if I take my own TV and I sell it, no big deal, right? It's mine. It's mine to give. I own it. And life and healing are Jesus's to give. He owns them. He has the authority. What's around you cannot heal what's within you, but the one who is above you can. Jesus says that those who hear him and believe him are given life, healed life. You've already accomplished the first step. You've heard him. If you come to this church, I promise that you will hear every week about the death, the resurrection, and the continuing reign of King Jesus. And so now the choice is yours. Will you believe? Or as Jesus would say, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? 
He offers us a choice in this passage. He says, on the one hand, you can choose death. That if Jesus is the giver of life, that means that without him, you cannot truly live. So if you choose to live your own way, to disbelieve him, or even to believe in him but not obey him, then you are essentially signing a DNR. No, Jesus, do not resuscitate me. To reject him is to choose judgment, death, and condemnation. Or, Jesus says, you can choose life. You can choose to hear him, to trust him, and to be healed. In fact, for those of you who have already trusted Jesus, this healing is not just possible. It has already begun. This salvation that he has given you, this is not just a clean slate or a second chance. It's not just forgiveness of your sins, although it is that. It is not just that, though. It is a resurrection. If you've been buried with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, then you have been raised with him to new life. Jesus says in John chapter five here that you have crossed over from death to life. So I don't know where exactly you need healing in your life today. But I believe that for every single one of us, there's a little corner of your heart where Jesus wants to whisper gently to you right now. Get up. Get up. Take up your mat and walk. So will you trust him enough to believe and to be healed? I don't know if you've ever read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't, you should. C.S. Lewis's work, it's just absolutely masterful. And in a lot of ways, it's symbolic of the Christian life. But if you have read those books, then my bet is there's one character in those stories that you don't like. Eustace. Now, Eustace was this little boy in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he's just spoiled, and he's mean to everybody around him. And so Eustace's story goes, one day he stumbles upon a dragon's lair and in it he discovers this hidden treasure and he decides to keep all of the treasure for himself. And so Eustace puts on a gold bracelet and falls asleep on his pile of gold. But when he wakes up, he discovers that he's been turned into a dragon. You see, this circumstance simply revealed what had been in him all along. C.S. Lewis writes this, he says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. And at first, Eustace likes being a dragon. I mean, he's, he's the biggest, toughest guy around. What's not to like? But eventually the loneliness and the chronic pain become too much to bear. And Eustace realizes how selfish he has been and he's desperate to be healed, but try as he might, he can't. He can't heal himself. And then one night, this, this lion appears in front of Eustace, and it's Aslan, the Christ figure of the story. And Eustace recounts the experience saying this. He says, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. I, I was terribly afraid of it. And, and you may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked out any lion easily enough. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just... Afraid of it, if you can understand. <laughs> well, it came closer up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I, I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. And I knew that I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. There was a garden, trees and fruit and everything, and in the middle of it, there was a well. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought that, that if I could just get in there, and bathe, it would ease my pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started 
scratching myself and, 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 and my scales, they, they began coming off all over the place. But, but just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all rough and hard and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. The lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all of the pain had gone, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. So, do you want to be healed? Because it is possible for those who hear and believe that Jesus is God, that he can do it. So will you trust him enough to let him tear away your scales, to, to cut the rope? Will you take up your mat and walk? I love how C.S. Lewis closes as he describes Eustace's transformation. He says, it would be nice and fairly neatly true to say that from that day forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this story. We know it's not just a story. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for healing that man. Thank you for proving, Jesus, that you are indeed fully God and that because you are God, not only is healing possible, but healing is available for those who hear and believe. So for those of us, Lord, who are already following you in which the cure has indeed begun, keep us faithful. And for those of us who have not yet believed, I pray that you would draw them in. Teach us to trust you, Lord. You're worthy of it. And as we drink the juice and eat the bread again at this time, we praise you for the ultimate healing that we have been given through your blood. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. 
Have a great week.